More people than ever in the history of humankind are going to museums. And because museums are for everyone, and in Europe they contain collections that are owned by everyone because they are collections owned by the nation, then there is a sense of responsibility and caring. And I don't think that the vast majority of the public is going to start condoning the destruction of works of art. Hi, I'm Ben Davis, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. On October 14th, Two anti-fossil fuels activists named Phoebe Plummer and Anna Holland walked into room 43 of London's National Gallery and threw a can of tomato soup on a Van Gogh painting of sunflowers. The action was part of a larger wave of occupations and direct actions by climate activists. In fact, no less than 28 arrests were made in central London that Friday alone. But the Van Gogh soup attack drew the most media attention by far to the cause. Indeed, this year the idea of using attacks on famous artworks for a cause has caught on like wildfire. Environmental activists in at least half a dozen countries, from Canada to Australia to Austria, made headlines by gluing themselves to frames, spray-painting gallery walls, or throwing food at paintings. These viral actions have touched off a fierce debate both inside and outside museums and among climate activists themselves. Are they exactly the kind of shocking images needed to get the public to pay attention to the climate crisis at this crucial moment? Or do the actions repel otherwise sympathetic observers, isolating a movement that needs to grow dramatically? This week we talked to London-based art journalist Farah Nayiri. A frequent contributor to the New York Times, Farah is the author of the recent book Takedown, Art and Power in the Digital Age. In an essay last month for Artnet News responding to this new wave of museum action, Farah wrote about the long history of vandalizing art for a cause, from suffragette Mary Richardson attacking Velazquez's Rockabee Venus a century ago, to more recent environmentalist protests against oil giant BP's sponsorship of British museums. Farah joined me to talk about this history and what impact the new protests are having. Farah Nayiri, thank you for being here with me on The Art Angle. It's my pleasure, Ben. Thank you for uh, hosting me. So you have written a book about the new social movements of the last few years and the effects that they've had on the museum. And today we're going to be talking about what could be an entire new chapter for you in your book, which is probably one of the biggest stories of 2022, this series of attacks on art around the world by activists related to the environmental or climate change movement. There have been news reports about it. There have been essays about it, memes about it, late night talk show monologues about it. But unless you're paying really close attention to the news, I'm not sure everybody knows the extent of what's going on. So can you just give us maybe a capsule history of what's been going on in the last few months? (laughs) Well, sure, I can try, Ben. But I mean, as you know, these attacks are happening like almost on a daily basis now. So it's hard for me to keep track. People think that these attacks started in Britain. As a matter of fact, the very first one this year that I could situate, or at least the very first spectacular one, was the one that was led against the Mona Lisa at the Louvre. That was in late May. 
a young man who was disguised as an elderly lady wearing a headscarf and sitting in a wheelchair was rolled up to the Mona Lisa and then suddenly took out a cream cake from somewhere and just splattered it all over the thick bulletproof glass that protects the Renaissance lady. And so after that, as you know, there's been a whole suite of actions. I guess the next one chronologically, if I'm not mistaken, was one that was led against Constable. In room 34 of the National Gallery in London, Constable's hugely famous The Hay Wayne, 19th century painting of a gorgeous landscape, was attacked at about 2.15 p.m. by a couple of students. They basically took this bucolic landscape and they pulled three posters from a tube and they scotch-taped these posters over the Hay Wayne that showed the landscape of the Hay Wayne destroyed by the climate crisis. So there were airplanes in there, there were trees that had been wrecked by fire, there was a, a rusty old car, and they sort of glued themselves then to the frame and they started shouting about, climate change, saying art is important, but it's not more important than the lives of my siblings and every generation that we are condemning to an unlivable future. And I suppose the one that I would consider the milestone was the protest led by a couple of climate activists against Van Gogh's sunflowers, possibly his most famous series. They came up to uh, the Van Gogh sunflowers, the one in the National Gallery in London on October 14th, and they pulled out cans of tomato soup. Each of them had one. And suddenly they were splashing tomato soup all over the sunflowers. And when you see the video that was being actually made of that action, you hear a man gasp in the background and say, security. And then, you know, of course, these young ladies park themselves in front of the painting and start again shouting about the importance of the climate and of the planet and how could art be more important than life itself and slogans of that sort. And I think that Van Gogh action has probably attracted the most attention. There have been others, as you know, before that, an attack on Botticelli in Italy, and there have been others. But I think the Van Gogh seems like a little bit of a, of a milestone moment. It definitely seems like the one that went viral, that this went from a series of isolated incidents or escalating series of incidents. That attack sort of turned this into a tactic that went worldwide. After that, there have been different sorts of actions in museums in Australia, in Vienna, in Canada. Who are the groups behind these actions? Well, I mean, the one that it seems to be getting the most media reference and attention is Just Stop Oil. It's, uh, I think, a British-based group, and really their beef is with any more natural gas and oil extraction projects and offshore rigs or being set up or established. They basically are saying no more extraction of crude oil or natural gas. Stop the whole thing. And that is the big message that they are putting across. Although I think it's worth saying that they do have this very concrete demand and message that they're trying to get out there about stopping new oil permitting. And at the same time, that has not been as much a part of the conversation as maybe you might have hoped. And I, I think that that might be the mixed blessing of these sorts of actions as an attention-grabbing stunt because on the one hand it's gotten a lot of attention for just stop oil as a group but the attention has been mainly around the idea of sort of generic climate change awareness 
like shocking people's eyes open rather than pointing to the very specific thing that they're demanding. I think that's kind of an interesting nuance. Of yes, it is. And it's something that I wanted to bring up with you later on if we went on to the subject of Mary Richardson, the suffragette who attacked the Velasquez and other feminists sort of attacking art that objectifies women. I've been thinking about this and thinking, in the case of the climate activists, there is a kind of disconnect between the message they're trying to put across and the objects or artworks that they're attacking. When the feminist attacks a work that objectifies women, the feminist is saying it is objectionable and women are being demeaned, and I am saying, as a feminist, stop demeaning women. So there is a very coherent correlation between the message and the action. I'm not condoning the action. I'm just saying that there is a coherent link. The problem that I'm coming across with these climate activists going at the Van Goghs and the Monets and the Botticellis is that even if the Van Gogh is depicting sunflowers or even if the Monet is showing haystacks, and these are, of course, elements of nature, there is no kind of coherent link between the message that they're shouting and these paintings. I mean, they're like on parallel tracks. And when I hear these activists actually interviewed, people say, so why are you taking it out on Vincent van Gogh? Why are you attacking Monet? They keep coming back and saying, well, aren't you worried about your children's future? Are you not concerned about the planet? What are you saying? That you don't care about raising temperatures, et cetera? They just don't address the question because there is no connection between the object of their attacks and the message they're putting across. And I think that that is where the problem is, that there is this disconnect. And that's why the public, as far as I can tell, is sort of getting a little disgruntled with this and even actually more than disgruntled. There are people who are scandalized and shocked and horrified by these actions. I think it's worth mentioning on that score that just Stop Will, this particular action, the soup action, other actions in museums, was part of a larger campaign by Just Stop Will that included some of those targeting more polluting things. And I think what activists might argue encounter is that they have done those kinds of actions that haven't gotten the same kind of media attention. And I think that gives the sense of a uncaring media, uncaring society that sort of pushes people towards these more sorts of spectacular actions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a good point. Fair point. But I will refer you to protests that were led by anti-oil activists more than a decade ago in museums here in London. I was witness to one at Tate. There was a whole movement called Liberate Tate because a lot of the museums and cultural institutions in this city and across the UK were getting masses of financing and backing from BP. BP is a backer of British culture and has been for about 50 years. So it really was giving colossal amounts of money to the British Museum, to Tate, to the Royal Opera House, and continues to be instrumental to some of the programming that goes on there. There was a summer party at Tate Britain. I was there as a member of the press. And I'm standing in the line outside waiting to get into this large cocktail party thing. And all of a sudden you see these anti-oil liberate Tate, as they were called, activists, suddenly show up and spill treacle, this kind of thick, dark goo that looked like crude oil, all across the shiny pavement in the entrance to the party, into the museum. 
and they kind of peppered it with bird feathers because this is right after this Gulf of Mexico BP environmental disaster that had left 11 people dead and had done colossal damage to the environment. Here was the museum trying to look its best and suddenly being tarred and covered with goo and gunk. And this went on inside, too. So I go inside, you know, and meanwhile, they're all trying to clean up the mess outside. And then I go upstairs and then all of a sudden, a couple of other of these people appear with very, very big skirts. And suddenly from underneath their skirts, yet again, they let all this treacle spill all over the floor of the magnificent Duveen Gallery where hundreds of people had been gathering. That was that one action. And then, of course, there was the fact that the British Museum recently, I think it was 2020, right before the world went into lockdown because of the COVID-19 pandemic, you had a group of demonstrators who were disguised as ancient Greek warriors who dragged this 13-foot-tall wooden horse into the main courtyard of the British Museum to protest the Troy exhibition, which was backed by BP. And they basically took over the museum. For much of the weekend, they had workshops, they had talks, they had creative activities. Here were climate activists drawing attention to the climate emergency. And, you know, I think they did so quite successfully. So there are ways of drawing attention that don't involve masterpieces of art. Sure. And I think that is a very interesting background that might not be appreciated and that your book really brings into focus. I agree with you that the new wave of activism targeting artworks is a different kind of tactic, different kind of way to use the museum, and to a certain extent seems sort of like a non sequitur to a lot of people who are observing. might even get so much media attention because it does seem like a non sequitur, as in like the way it's covered, it kind of stops people because it's like they did what? They attacked this totally unconnected work of art for climate change awareness reasons. But there is this larger background that's been building over the last few years of actions in the museum, including actions over oil sponsorship of museum, which I think even a few decades ago, the museum might have seemed like a more pristine place detached from political conversation in a way that the last five to 10 years really has politicized the museum as a stage for political action. I kind of feel as if these BP or not BP protests in the British museums kind of linger in the background of some of these new actions. They've left for environmental activists the image that sort of social media action in the museum can be an attention-raising tactic. Yes, and I think there's also a very, very important example of exactly what you're saying, and that is the chain of actions against the Sacklers' name on museums and cultural institutions in the United States and in Europe, led, of course, by the artist Nan Golden, through her actions to name and shame museums and cultural institutions accepting Sackler money by doing so in very, very spectacular militant actions, staging what she describes as die-ins. I mean, if you recall, she went into the Metropolitan Museum of Art right next to the Temple of Dendur, which had been installed in the Met with Sackler money. And there she is with her fellow activists, and they're pouring these pill bottles into the little pool of water around the temple. And then they're lying on the floor pretending to die. How spectacular can you get as an activist trying to protest something? And she has been very successful because 
the Sackler name has basically come off every institution here in Europe that I'm aware of. And in America, probably it's come off almost everyone as well. What Nan Golden's actions also did was lead to a kind of reopening of the whole case and a kind of reexamination of the sort of settlement that was paid out to the hundreds of thousands of people who died of the opioid crisis. So the museum was a platform for her to draw attention to the hundreds of thousands of deaths from the opioid crisis and from a drug that the Sacklers had developed. So this is not just taking the name off the wall. This is also benefiting humanity. That was a very, very successful example of art activism. I'm sure that some of these young people looking at Nan and the success that she had with the Sackler campaign are probably thinking, yeah, museums are a pretty good place to uh, advertise our cause. So before we go any further, you talk about how these actions concern you because of their sort of direct nature of their intervention with the art vandalizing the art or attacking the art or gluing activists to the art. But I think we should clarify, have any of the artworks actually been hurt? Or what's the status of the artworks? To my knowledge, I think that at this point, there is a frame that has been damaged. And this is a frame of a Van Gogh painting that was, I believe, attacked at the Courtauld Gallery. So this is not the Van Gogh in the National Gallery. I believe it's somewhere else. And I think that a young activist has been given a prison sentence of a few weeks for damage to that frame. I certainly am not aware, and I don't think there has been damage done to any artwork in any significant way in the recent wave that we've seen. Sometimes lost in the flood of media coverage is that they've been sort of carefully crafted as PR exercises not to actually hurt the art. They've only yeah. gone after artworks that are covered in different kinds of ways or deface the areas around the artwork with graffiti or stickers. I mean, I did listen to an interview with one of the activists who I think was involved in one of these actions. And she said, oh, no, we basically go and check it out beforehand. And then she said, yeah, we also have some conservators who are among our climate activists, and sometimes we consult them. It didn't sound methodical. It didn't sound like something that was really that studied. And I really am incredibly worried because I also heard one of these activists, I believe, told Sky News that we're going to step this up and we're going to go and do the same thing that this suffragette did, Mary Richardson, and we're thinking of actually starting to slash canvases too because, you know, she actually achieved something and got somewhere with her action. So we're thinking of stepping our action up too. The point about them attacking art that's been protected for me is more about how these are crafted as PR exercises. And the important points about that is that what gets attention is what's important. So there's already a kind of escalation from activists gluing themselves to artworks, which generated a flood of headlines earlier in the year, to the tactic of throwing food on artworks, which is a little more shocking and generated more attention. So a given tactic only works as long as it is shocking enough to generate media. So there is a kind of escalating flywheel of tactical logic here. Yeah, there is absolutely, as you say, an escalation. And the proof is that the artwork that has been vandalized the most in the history of art is the Mona Lisa. That's no accident. She is probably the world's most famous work of art. 
even more so than Van Gogh's sunflowers. So, you know, of course, that's the one that gets targeted the most. When I was writing my book, I counted four acts of vandalism, plus a theft that occurred beginning of the 20th century, in which some Italian took the painting to Italy because he felt it should be in Italy, and then it was retrieved. And with the cream cake incident, now there are five. So the bigger the artwork, the more the attacks. But as you say, in this feverish frenzy to get more and more attention, where are we going to go next? Where is this going to lead? Following this series of attacks, the activists have begun to be actually charged. Where do we stand on that? Just Stop Oil activists have been found guilty of criminal damage of a Van Gogh painting. And this is not the sunflowers. It's the frame of the painting. It's the peach trees in blossom at London's Courtauld Gallery. And they were found to have caused about 2,000 pounds of damage to this. One of the activists was jailed for three weeks and the other received a suspended sentence. The prosecutions are still in the early stages and there's nothing particularly dramatic going on. I think in the Netherlands, the protesters who glued themselves to the girl with the pearl earrings were charged and I believe they got two months in prison. That's right. Those are the only two that I could see. As the weeks go by, I presume that there will be more prosecutions and we'll see where the judges stand. Which certainly has the possibility to either put a break on this particular cycle of protest or actually to accelerate it if people consider the museums even more and more of an antagonist in the war of public opinion. So you already began to touch on this, Farah, but there's a history of vandalism and attacks on art for political reasons that I think it's fair to say that one of the points of your book has accelerated in the social media age, but definitely goes back way longer than that. So what are some of the examples that these activists look to that have brought this tactic to prominence? I think that the most spectacular and most frequently cited act of political activism against a work of art is what the suffragette Mary Richardson, who was actually Canadian-born, believe it or not, led against Velasquez's Toilet of Venus. She basically, in March 1914, entered the National Gallery in London with, a, I think, a meat cleaver. She went at the Rokeby Venus by Velasquez, and she just made uh, half a dozen gashes and slashes to this canvas. She then was arrested and sent to Holloway Prison. And the quote that she gave when she led this attack was, I have tried to destroy the picture of the most beautiful woman in mythological history as a protest against the government for destroying Mrs. Pankhurst, who is the most beautiful character in modern history. And Mrs. Pankhurst is a reference to Emmeline Pankhurst, who had just been re-sent to jail and re-imprisoned because of her campaigns for the woman's vote. Mary Richardson is really the person who probably led the act of vandalism that is referred to most frequently, as I said, as being successful. Because, of course, as we know, the suffragettes eventually did succeed and women did get the vote. I cannot personally condone in any circumstance any act of vandalism, and I cannot condone the slashing of the Rokeby Venus. And I certainly wouldn't be sitting here talking to you and giving plaudits to Mary Richardson. However, as I said, what she did had a certain coherence because these feminist 
activists were basically contesting the objectification of women. You had this beautiful nude Venus in the Velasquez painting. She's contemplating herself in the mirror. Her back is turned to the viewer. You see her beautiful reclining body. She represents at the same time an entire half of the human species who were voiceless and completely powerless at the time in the real world. They had no agency, meaning women. They didn't have the right to vote. And so Mary Robinson, in this kind of oblique way, I guess, and very violent way, is drawing attention to that. And I wanted to also remind you of another act that took place in March 1986 that I was reminded of. Two feminists poured paint stripper over this work by the British artist Alan Jones, his famous 1969 sculpture, Chair, which, of course, as you know, is a topless leather-clad mannequin who's lying on her back with booted legs in the air and a cushion resting on her thighs. This is clearly something that feminist or even anybody would view as a demeaning depiction of a woman. This mannequin in what looked like S&M gear had chemicals poured over her face and shoulders and was left with what looked like third-degree burns. There was a Tate Britain exhibition, believe it or not, in 2013, all about art and vandalism called Art Under Attack, I don't think they would have a show of that kind right now because they wouldn't want to give anybody any ideas. But the chair sculpture was there. It was on display, of course, in the restored version. They didn't show the defaced version, but they did remind people of this feminist attack on what was considered a demeaning depiction of women. So I would have a tendency to say that maybe some of these feminist assaults on art They have been violent and destructive, but the message underneath them was probably effective. And so it's probably not a surprise that we keep referring to Mary Richardson. So that's the historical trajectory of some of these actions. My colleague Tim Schneider has an article looking at some of the more contemporary art destruction actions that resonate with the Just Stop Oil soup attack and some of these other art attacks. And one of the points he makes is that within and outside of activism, this really seems to be a moment where there are a lot of media stunts targeting art. So he's talking about, for instance, there was a very controversial show on the British television called Art Attacks, where a comedian basically would smash art or hold a referendum on whether a piece of art by a person with a disreputable background should be destroyed because their life was so horrible. And that caused a huge wave of controversy In the UK, he talks about Damien Hirst, who has a whole art project called The Currency, where as part of it, he burns a series of prints he made. So destroying art seems to be a very good way to get attention that in our contemporary media environment. What do you think of of some of those comparisons? I did watch the Art Attack show. There was a work by Picasso. Obviously, it was not a hugely valuable work. And they were having a big vote about whether we should bash and smash this thing because Picasso had this 17-year-old girlfriend and cheated on the women in his life and he was an adulterer and whatever. So they put this to a vote 
the outcome was, no, we shouldn't destroy this. And so that kind of gives me hope here. I go to the Van Gogh sunflowers after they're smeared with tomato soup, maybe a week, two weeks later, there's the swarm of smartphone wielders. They're all standing there taking snaps of this painting. And they're obviously all there because they read about it in the news and they saw it on social media and all that. And then I'm standing with an earshot of these two very young women and one of them says, oh, look, there's the damage. So I go up to her and I say, actually, there is no damage. If you come close, you will see that this is a glazed painting. There has been no damage to this. But so people really thought that the tomato soup had actually reached the surface of the canvas and they were upset by it. I spoke to these young women, and they were very young. They were in their early 20s, exactly the kind of demographic who would be very caring about the climate. And I said, what do you think of this? One of them said, I I really don't think it's appropriate for the climate emergency to be advertised or publicized by attacking works of art. By the same token, I have faith in the judgment of museum goers, because It used to be that only people who were fancy and wealthy and powerful could go to museums or have collections in their homes, only the popes and princes and nobility, etc. Now museums are open to everyone. They're no longer these kind of forbidding places. Museums, as Rem Koolhaas likes to say, they're like modern-day cities. So you walk into a museum like Tate Modern, and you can do all kinds of things there. You can shop, you can eat, You can enjoy some leisure time with your family, without your family, and you can see some art. Basically, a city all under one roof. Well, what that means is that more people than ever in the history of humankind are going to museums. And because museums are for everyone, and in Europe they contain collections that are owned by everyone because they are collections owned by the nation, then there is a sense of responsibility and caring And I don't think that the vast majority of the public is going to start condoning the destruction of works of art because the painter was this or that or because he or she committed this or that. So, yeah, I mean, I am a bit of an optimist, I have to say, Ben. And so for me, the glass is half full. (laughs) Although I think that that's a very good observation you make about the transformation of what museums represent in the public. And I think on the flip side, you could argue that In their transformation away from a kind of sacred space or temple-like space to a more commercial shopping mall-like space, that does take the status of the art down a notch. You know, it becomes just more or less a tourist attraction, which then I think does strip some of the sacred aura off of these works of art that might have protected them from these kinds of defacements in the past. Absolutely, yeah. As in everything... (laughs) there is a thin line. And the thin line here and what you just described perfectly is the fact that these museums are open. In Britain, the permanent collections are free. In France, they're free for under 18s. There are all kinds of places where you can wander into a museum and not have to pay anything. The flip side is, as you say, that this accessibility can be too much. We may be giving too much access, but where do you draw the line? And that's a very, very delicate balance because when you're a museum administrator or a ministry of culture or a government and you want your nation and the public to actually benefit from the collections that belong to them, 
You can't put them up behind guardrail. You can't put them up behind bulletproof glass. You can't keep people out. This sort of fortress environment is kind of, in a way, antagonistic to the purpose of museums. So it's all about balance and equilibrium. And it's a very difficult one, especially with the attacks we're seeing right now. Your book, Takedown, is about the power of museums in the digital age and how it's changed. And for me, one of the points about putting these art attacks by activists in the context of these other events, other media stunts that destroy art, like the Art Attack show or the Damien Hirst destruction, is that the tactic kind of spreads like a meme. So I just wonder if you have any thoughts about how these particular kinds of activist interventions into the museum space are shaped by social media and whether that's a strength or a weakness. Daniel Birnbaum says in my book, Social media is an amplifier and an accelerator of tremendous power. And of course, you know that, again, like everything else, is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it certainly would be curbing some of the actions and the attacks we've been seeing. Imagine if there was no social media, the vandals would have to perform their acts of soup throwing at Van Gogh and mashed potatoes smearing of Monet. All they would get would be write-ups in print media. But how far would that get them? The impact doesn't come from an article in the newspaper. The impact comes from the vision of these artworks being vandalized in moving images. And without social media, how would those videos and moving images get to the public? So, yes, you are right that social media is definitely an accelerator and an amplifier of this phenomenon that we're seeing right now. There is no question about it. It's a massive vehicle for this. So it is both a strength and a weakness because it enables or encourages actions that are potentially risky and perilous and reckless and damaging. But let's not throw the baby out of the bathwater. I mean, as I write in my book, social media has been a very important tool in democratizing art, democratizing the museum, the gallery, the auction world. It's given voice and representation to people who didn't have any meaning women through the Me Too movement, meaning non-white artists, thanks to Black Lives Matter. And these are all movements that were carried by social media. Social media as a platform is also there for people who are being abused or somehow mistreated by the art world in some way. This is just one tiny example, but it's one I discuss in my book. Think of all those young people who are interns in commercial galleries and who are paid little to nothing, who are treated terribly, professionally abused. I mean, without social media, and for instance, these anonymous channels on Instagram, how else would they be heard? So social media, for me, is a force for good in a democratic world. And it's also a force for good in a non-democratic world. Look at all the democratic protest movements around the world right now. They've been made possible by social media. And of course, there are excesses. Of course, there are abuses. But again, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. One of the things that strikes me about these particular series of protest actions in relationship to what you talk about in your book, what you just talked about, the cycle of museum protests and art protests for the last five years, you end your book by quoting a curator saying, you know, the genie's out of the bottle, basically the change unleashed by these protests, this idea of the museum as a platform where people can be heard, that's unstoppable. And... I guess I have a slightly more cynical take on it or 
I'm slightly a little more doubtful in the sense that I think the vigilante nature of a lot of social media action, you know, has misses as well as successes. And one of the results of that is to build up a level of cynicism about social media targeted activism over time, that people view it as performative and symbolic or anti-intellectual. And when I look at the public reaction to these attacks, which at the end of the day are pretty carefully crafted PR stunts for a good cause and probably the most urgent cause of our time, whether or not you agree with the tactic, but the reaction has been so negative to them. I mean, overwhelmingly negative. I would say at least 90% against. And the only people really for it are people who are deeply invested in the movement already. I just see a level of backlash towards the kind of new digital activism that you write about in the book. I see a level of cynicism that's been built up that puts a question mark on the statement that the genie is out of the bottle, that change is unstoppable. I agree with you, and that really depends on what the campaign is and what the social media spectacular program is. There is a certain level of saturation, which I think that you just pointed out, in these attacks on art by the climate protesters. And I think we may even have surpassed that level of saturation. I think that these were probably not the most well-calculated in terms of appealing to the public actions. And that what you're saying basically is proof that there is a backlash. Any movement, any piece of activism, any protest, any demonstration this is a very, very extreme parallel, but even acts of terrorism, all of these, let's say, actions, they have a purpose. They have an objective. And I think the objective in this case has not been reached, which is why I think that if these people are cognizant of the reaction to what they're doing, I think they're going to put a stop to these actions. And I would have a tendency to believe that the actions were concentrated around the time of the COP27 meeting in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, that there was a huge, huge buildup and escalation because there was massive global attention to the COP. And so that these actions were multiplying because they wanted the COP and the leaders gathered there to pay attention and to do what they were asking. Now with the COP behind us, I am not so sure that we are going to see a further escalation. I kind of think that these actions are going to start fizzling out a bit, especially if public opinion is not particularly, you know, as you say, impressed by them. That does not mean that social media actions in general are all going to end up with a backlash. Something like hashtag me too, that kind of a campaign. I mean, tomorrow there may be something that explodes somewhere. There may be some horrible abuse committed in one area or another. And if there's a hashtag that started and if people are debating and, and meeting and talking and protesting about it, I don't think that that will necessarily meet with public saturation or public irritation. So when Anne Temkin of MoMA, who you quote, in my epilogue saying the genie's out of the bottle. When she says that, I don't think she means, well, now we're going to have social media campaigns everywhere and they're going to go on forever. I think what she means is the kind of inclusivity that has been demanded and obtained through protest movements, that genie is out of the bottle, the genie of inclusivity and the genie of greater democracy and accessibility. What has been the reaction from 
the public, from museum observers, from other activists to these actions. In the columns of The Guardian, you do see people who say, why should a Van Gogh painting of, of a sunflower be more precious than a flower in real life? I mean, you do see, of course, there are environmentalists who do believe that the world is maybe coming to an end and that we're fussing over a bunch of canvases. But I think that on balance, the reaction is, as you say, I mean, the vast majority of public opinion does not approve of these actions. And I also would like to read out the statement that was put out by a large number of the world's major museum directors. Just to quote them, they say, the Activists responsible for these actions severely underestimate the fragility of these irreplaceable objects, which must be preserved as part of our world cultural heritage. And they say, as museum directors entrusted with the care of these works, we have been deeply shaken by their risky endangerment. And the one other point I would like to make, which I made in my Artnet column, is that unlike great works of music or great works of literature, which can be replicated and reproduced ad infinitum, as you and I both know, a work of art cannot be replicated satisfactorily. You will never get a reproduction that will give you the experience of standing in front of the real thing. And so by going after these single masterpieces that are not reproducible, you really are attacking the heritage of humanity. The Buddhas of Bamiyan and Afghanistan were destroyed for all time. And I'm not drawing comparisons with acts of terrible violence committed by the Taliban against these ancient, beautiful Buddhas. But if one of these masterpieces of art is damaged, then I don't see the difference with the Buddhas of Bamiyan. To be fair to the activists, yeah. I think probably everyone is aware that these are works that are singular and irreplaceable. And that's exactly why they are a target in the sense that we have only one Earth. We have a very limited amount of time to make really dramatic change. The activists in a German museum who targeted a Monet in late October, their statement was, we are in a climate catastrophe and all you are afraid of is tomato soup or mashed potatoes on a painting. I'm afraid because the science tells us that we won't be able to feed our families in 2050. This painting is not going to be worth anything if we have to fight over food. The singular nature of the artworks is part of these actions, which so far have been very carefully staged not to destroy them, but really to raise the question about what people value. Well, I don't know how carefully they've been staged because, as I said, I, I, I heard an interview and, and one of the activists said, oh, no, we just go and look at it beforehand. I mean, you know, maybe there is a perforation in one of these glazed paintings that you can't see. As the museum directors say, these are very, very fragile objects. If this is going to continue, then I think we need to really be very, very methodical and very, very careful about which ones we're targeting. It's really interesting that just days after, I think, 92 museum directors signed the statement that you mentioned saying that the activists underestimated the fragility of the artworks and that these actions raise a lot of concerns for the international museum community. Almost immediately, the International Council of Museums followed up with another statement that I found really extraordinary, where they stated... ICOM, that's the Council of Museums, yeah. sees the choice of museums as a backdrop for these climate protests as a testament of their symbolic power and relevance in the discussion around the climate emergency. 
It went on to say, ICOM recalls the need for courageous action to reduce carbon emissions and mitigate global warming. We must step up for our planet collectively and united, for there is no climate solution without transforming our world. So it is a kind of a remarkable thing that there are these two statements right on top of each other, one basically decrying the tactic and the other one actually almost responding to it in a positive way to say that the protests affirmed that the museum was a place where important conversations could be had and turning their voice to world leaders to put the weight of culture behind the call for dramatic action. I thought that was almost affirmed the tactic. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably because I'm sure there are many, many museum directors among them who probably found the first statement too harsh. You know, it's like, oh, you've gone too far in condemning this and and climate is incredibly important and we feel strongly. I mean, I'm just guessing here. Yeah, I mean, they probably have PR professionals looking over their shoulder saying, you know, if you take too hard of a stance, you risk becoming the bad guy here and triggering more actions. I mean, you can't rule that out either. Exactly. They don't want to come across, and I don't want to come across as a climate denier. That's not what we're doing here. The climate emergency is very, very clear and obvious. I mean, the climate is changing, and, you know, the events in Pakistan, the flooding, the human tragedy, all of this is absolutely indisputable. I just think that the whole action of targeting paintings and great art masterpieces to denounce this, it's just a misguided strategy, in my view. Just to wrap things up, I wrote my own article about this for the site called There Has to Be a Better Way to Discuss the Climate Activist Attacks on Art. And I think my position might be a little different in that I think that if we were having a different kind of conversation or if they were set up to have a different kind of conversation, I might be a lot more supportive. But my assessment is that these come out of a place of desperation, of the fact the media is not covering more substantial kinds of protests. So this becomes a way to get media coverage, but that the entire quest for media coverage as the point of the actions comes with a little bit of a price, which the way these protests get framed and present themselves is the need to shock people into awareness or to shock people awake. And... I'm just not so certain that the kind of people who can be moved by protest, that being unaware of the severity or dramatic nature of climate change is the problem. I think there are a lot of people who are aware of it, but need some sort of hope that it can be turned around and that the framing of these almost goes in the other direction, almost as if to say that there's no hope. I think that's the poison chalice of this sort of action. In Takedown, you write about the implications of the new forms of protest for museums. These climate attacks, as I said before, could be like a whole new chapter in your book. What do you think the implications or lessons for museums are going forward? I think the museums are going to really step up security and protection in ways that people like us who would like to visit museums and get close to these works will not really appreciate. I think that they're going to have to put up Barriers are going to have to put up bulletproof glass. Uh, Vitrines will become thicker. The distance between yourself and the work of art will become greater. It was at the Cezanne show at the Tate Modern the other day. I went right up to see the single brush strokes. My nose was practically touching the canvas. It is just an extraordinary luxury that has been allowed us for a few centuries now. 
And if this sort of thing goes on, well, I think that we will not be able to get close to these. And I think that a lot of museums are going to have to invest in glazing their paintings, which is a costly exercise. There are a lot of things that fall under the category of indirect expenses of climate change. You can talk about damage from hurricanes on the coast, for instance, but it's really the fact that flood insurance becomes prohibitively expensive. That is another catastrophic effect of those sort of things. And in this case, there's the actual damage as the world becomes more extreme and people take more forms of extreme action. But then there's just the cost of insurance, insuring and guarding art, which will go up and that cost will have to be borne by someone. And it makes these already, for the most part, under-resourced institutions a little more difficult to sustain in the near term. Exactly. Yeah, I couldn't have said it any better. Well, Farah, thank you very much for being on The Art Angle and sharing your thoughts today. My pleasure, Ben. Thank you very much. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also take a moment to rate and review us. It's a little thing, but it does help listeners who don't know what we're doing yet discover what we're doing. And that's a good thing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening. See you next week.